All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 4. We are spending this year going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We said at the church meeting last week that part of this was focused on uh, giving us a clear picture of Jesus Christ. We have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, He's revealed himself in his word. And so while the whole Bible tells the story of God, the whole Bible is his revelation. Jesus is the key to understanding it all. Right, So the Old Testament gives us the framework uh, to understand the Messiah. Uh, the rest of the New Testament shows us what it means that he has come. How shall we then live? But without Jesus at the center, the whole story of God's redemptive story is misread. And so Jesus is both the invitation, um, our invitation into the truth of God. Jesus is also the lens by which it all comes together. That is to say, the gospel breaks down this wall of separation between us and God But the gospel also acts as the structure for us to realign our lives with who we were created to be. And so as we come to a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, we're also able to come to conclusions about why we exist and and what it means to live in this world. And so as we work through this gospel, we're not just reading the story of Jesus, we're not just learning about who he is. But we should also be allowing the reality of Jesus to change how we see every part of our own lives. And one of the ways that Jesus does this, one of the ways that he reveals this truth to us, is through parables. And so last week we started a section on the parables. um, And Jesus used the first parable to sort of explain why he teaches in parables. Why it is that he chooses to reveal truth in this way. And we said the parables exist for, for sort of to do two things. Um, The first is for distinction, to make it clear that there is a difference between those who have been called into God's family and changed by the Spirit, those who have been given ears to hear, and those who haven't. And so the people of God have a different truth, a different purpose, a different hope, a different motivation. They are different people. As the people of God, we should look different than the other people in this world because our lives have been entirely reoriented. The second thing we said the parables do is they give revelation. That is, once you've accepted that you have been called out by God, that you've been changed for his glory, then you should be like, there are some things I need to know. Some of these details are truths that are not easily found uh, through human logic and deduction. That's not truth that we're going to be able to go out and find on our own because it is God's truth. And so if we're going to engage with these divine truths, God's going to need to explain them to us. There's no other way that we will know the things of God except God telling us about them. So as God does this, especially as Jesus does this in parables, he doesn't dumb these things down. Which means he sort of leaves these divine truths on this level where we can only sort of get it. Right? Jesus reveals something to us, but in the revelation he also shows us that we're not actually able to grasp it fully. And we saw this in the parable of the sower last week. Jesus lays out this story about the act of regeneration, right? the heart change um, from disbelief to belief. He describes it as a soil that has been prepared. And the idea is that a soil that is not ready will not receive the seed or allow it to grow. The only way that anyone is going to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ is if the Spirit of God has done the work of preparing him. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually showing us 
that the salvation experience is more than what we see. I'd say he's pulling back the curtain to show us that there are things going on that we otherwise would not be aware of. That is to say, if we take just the idea of of belief, if we take the idea of evangelism and and, and basically someone responding, um, what we see is we see someone proclaiming the gospel, and then we see as the gospel goes out, some people respond and some people don't. And if we just look at the part that we see, it would lead us to believe that what's making the change is either the quality of the message or sort of the intellectual assent of the person listening. And when we look at it this way, we will either celebrate the successful pastors and preachers and evangelists who are really good at telling the message, and kind of will also celebrate those who believe, we'll celebrate even ourselves for being smart enough to accept it. But the parable of the sower changes all of that. Because soil, soil has nothing to be proud of, all right, right? Getting back to the parable, soil has nothing to be proud of, and the seed is not what makes the difference. Just give it a second here. Nobody's hearing anything that I'm saying. I almost feel like I'm Jesus telling a parable to the people whose hearts have not been prepared. No. It's all good, bud. All right, so, parable of the sower. The parable changes the way that we think about how evangelism, how proclamation and, and, and receiving works. Um, it does matter what the message is, right? I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what sort of the message of the gospel is. There are good ways to spread the gospel and bad ways to spread the gospel, and those are out there. But what this parable makes it very clear is the message in the parable is not what's doing it. The seed is the same no matter where it's scattered. The only difference in who responds and who doesn't is the heart of the person who receives it. And so Jesus has sort of described or revealed to us these actions, this part of the story that we don't see. But it doesn't take away from the part that we do see. In other words, Even though Jesus has shown us that a heart has to be prepared in order to receive the gospel, it doesn't change the fact that we should proclaim the gospel, that we should try to convince people of the gospel, that we should use facts and, and, again, try to show them what is true. Nothing changes on this side of the curtain except for the fact that we now know that there's something else going on on the other side of the curtain. And knowing that God is doing something that we don't see actually ends up changing everything. Because it changes the fact that we now know that God is at work in every aspect of evangelism and heart change that happens. We know that His power is over, able to overcome even the greatest of our weaknesses. Ultimately, knowing that God is at work in the heart of every person who believes even changes the way we think about our own salvation realizing that it has much more to do with him than it does with us. And so Jesus in the parables has revealed sort of all of these new layers to us, but he does it in a way that does not answer all the questions. It does not make everything clear. It does not make everything easy. He leaves it in this form because in order for us to merge what we know and what we see with what we don't see and he has just sort of shown us, 
would require a great deal more information and explanation than we have the ability to comprehend. So in the parables, Jesus provides us with new information while also making it clear to us that there is so much we don't know. And so this is how parables work. They both grow our understanding and our humility. And so we're going to continue this today. We're looking at three short parables today. Uh, They all have to do with the kingdom of God. Uh, Now, the kingdom of God is a term used throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, um, to describe the people of God under God's rule and reign. Um, There's a full and complete manifestation of the kingdom of God um, in the end. The kingdom is coming, um, but for now, it is God's people living out His plan and purpose in the world. So in terms of distinction, uh, these parables mean nothing to people who do not submit to God. The parables of the kingdom are unhelpful to someone who, has not, who does not see themselves as part of his kingdom. And in terms of revelation, uh, they, they show us now, um, as the people of God, what it means to be his, what it means to live in this world, and what it is that we should be investing in, and what it is that we should be working towards. So with all of that, let's get into it. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. It says this, it says, he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has more, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, so this is sort of well-known imagery of Jesus, the the lamp under a basket. Uh, Most of us are familiar with this idea of the lamp under a basket from the children's song, This Little Light of Mine. Um, That song uh, comes from uh, actually Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this, he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Nor do people light it and put a lamp under a basket. But, oh, sorry. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? So, so from this teaching, we get the idea that, that we are the light of the world um, and that the light shining is, is God's truth shining in and through us. Um, and because we have been given this light, we should not keep it hidden. Right? So the idea is we should be proclaimers, we should be witnesses of the gospel, we should let our light shine before others. Or another way to say it would be, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no! I'm going to let it shine. Now I point to all of this because I want it to be clear that this actually is not what Mark is saying. That is to say, the teaching in Matthew and the teaching in Mark are two different times um, when while Jesus is using the same imagery, he's actually using it very differently. Uh, This is a parable. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is a metaphor. Um, And and in Matthew, what he's giving us is an application, what we're supposed to do, uh, whereas this here is actually Jesus revealing something to us that we would otherwise not have known, something that's still hidden that he's trying to show us. And so let's look at this, realizing this doesn't necessarily say what you think it says, um, coming in with the idea of the song. Um, So what does it say? Well, Jesus says, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? 
Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So what Jesus is saying here is, is the lamp here is not us. The lamp is actually him. And this is a phrase that he used to describe himself, a lamp or a light, in a number of places all throughout the New Testament. Uh, most well-known is probably John chapter 8, when he declares, I am the light of the world. Um, we also have the opening of the Gospel of John in John 1, 5, where it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's really sort of the idea that Jesus is getting to here, um, that here is Jesus, the light of the world. The light of the world has come into the world. He is right there with the people, and we see many of them turn away. They choose darkness. And so Jesus has described why that's happening in the parable of the sower. He's already said, when you see that happening, know that to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He's saying, for those of you who get it, you see the light. For everyone else, they don't see it. Now, what this means is that the kingdom of God does not appear powerful and true in a world that thinks it knows better. Right? In the world that we live in, the darkness seems like it is winning. And if the majority of the people in the world see what we believe as foolishness, if they reject the light, if it remains in parables to them, it can begin to seem to us as well that the light is not bright enough. That God's plan to redeem his whole creation is somehow small and secondary to all the other things that we have going on. It can seem like the darkness has overcome the light. And what happens when we sort of get under that cloud is that all of the other things, all of the other plot lines of this world, things like success and fame and power, or honestly for some of us just getting through the day, all of these can seem bigger than the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gives us this parable. He teaches his people that the light will not stay hidden. What he is saying here is, my truth will be put up on a lampstand and give light to the whole world. It will be made manifest. Everyone will see it. Now, there are immediate and sort of present realities to this. One thing that he is saying is, is, is eventually, in the new heavens and the new earth, the glory um, of God will shine out over all of the world. We see this in Revelation 22.5 when it says, And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, sorry, yeah, and they will reign forever and ever. So what he's talking about here is not just an issue of brightness, uh, but of truth. The idea is that when all of sin and all the false gods, when, when everything is, is sort of purged from this world, all that is left will be the kingdom and the truth of God. His goodness, his light will be manifested completely in all of creation. And we will experience all the good that comes from living in the complete perfection of all things. His light will touch everything, and we will be unified under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That is the future that we put our hope in. That is what we should all be looking forward to. But we don't have to wait till the end to get a sense of this, because His truth is also designed into this world. And so learning to see through the lens of the gospel helps us to recognize God's kingdom power at work 
now. And that is because in the same way that he revealed his sovereign hand in in belief in the last parable, we can now see his active hand in all that happens in this world. Because we don't simply live by sort of a a system of, of cause and effect that operates apart from its maker. Instead, everything in this world happens from him and for him and by him. And when you acknowledge sort of a guiding hand that is there, controlling all things towards an end, it should take away a great deal of the fear and uncertainty that this world brings. Because while this world may not currently acknowledge the light, there is a day coming we are promised in Philippians 2, when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can be sure of this. We can know that it will happen because we have been given the eyes to see God at work now. And so we are waiting, but we are not simply waiting. We can begin to build up our faith by investing in his kingdom work now. Which is what Jesus points to when he says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Jesus is saying that this world is is filled with all sorts of currencies, all all different ways of measuring value. If you invest in worldly gain, you will get a a quick return that has no lasting value. It'll, it'll, It'll burn hot, it'll burn out. But for those who put their time and energy into the kingdom good, that investment will grow. And this is because to press into God's work will actually allow you to see it more and more readily. This is the idea that the more that you get, the more it will be given to you. In other words, the more that you kind of take on God's kingdom work, the more you'll be able to see it. The more you see it, the more you'll be able to see it. And pretty soon it will build in you, it will change you to the point where you look out at the world and all you see is God working in it. Jesus sort of describes this in in Matthew 6 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. If you seek his kingdom first, your life will be oriented to him. And all that you have and all that you do will be swept up into participation in his kingdom. Right? All these things will be added to you does not mean you'll get everything you want. It means you will recognize that all you have and all you are is connected to God's kingdom. And because of that, every part of your life is infused with meaning and value. Because everything is His. Everything you do is worship. All of your life becomes about living in His kingdom. And so our lives are not just what we see. We are part of a cosmic movement that is happening below the surface which Jesus builds on in the next parable. Verse 26, he says this. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and he sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So we see Jesus returns to sort of the theme of the the sower and the seed. And so he's talking here about the the growth of the kingdom from what it currently is to to what it will be. 
And he puts us in this parable in the place of the farmer uh, who does the job of planting, right? So he puts the seed in the ground, then he waits. Now, this is not a statement about how hard farmers work, all right? Farmers work very hard, um, but what it's saying is there's things a farmer can't do, right? As the farmer waits, something is happening, the seed is germinating, the seed is sprouting, then the seed is growing, and by the time that that seed gets to the surface of the ground, by the time that you can actually see anything, a lot has already happened. There's a whole process that the farmer isn't actually privy to. Now, it doesn't stop there. Even after that, that sprout comes up out of the ground, the farmer still has to wait for it to grow into a stalk and then an ear and then full grain in the ear. This is talking about grain, but the same is true for whatever you grow. You can treat the soil, you can weed the garden, but the actual process of growth is something that happens apart from the farmer. And so Jesus is getting back to this idea of, of sort of what's happening in front of the curtain and what's happening behind the curtain. He's already encouraged his disciples to shift their focus from those things that they can control to celebrating and investing in what is hidden. Here, he wants them to understand that all of the good that is produced in the world, specifically the good of God's kingdom, is being brought along by this invisible hand. That is to say, nothing just happens. Farmers are not making the plants grow. There is this work being done by God alongside every single thing that we see happening. So what Jesus is encouraging us to do here is to imagine God's activity in those things that we tend to just accept as how the world operates. So like plants growing, we learn about that in biology class, we see the chart we can see what's going on underneath the soil in, in a nice little picture that they give us. But ultimately, we don't really understand how it works. We just see the results. And that's what Jesus is saying. You see the results, but you don't actually know the power that is producing those results. And rather than just giving credit to the nameless, impersonal forces of nature, think about all of these as God working out his plan in time and space. I've always loved how G.K. Chesterton says this. I say that a lot. I love how G.K. Chesterton says a lot of things. Um, but this was something that sort of changed my way of thinking the first time I read it. He says, it, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. Right? I always love that because it puts an actual, it, it shows God's part in all these things happening that we just kind of go, plant a daisy seed, it'll grow a daisy, right? Plant this, that's what it'll grow. That's what nature does. The sun rises, the sun sets. We know it happens because the earth is rotating. But who's making the earth rotate? Gravitate? I know, I know the answer. My mom was a scientist. If you ask her any question, you never got an easy answer, all right? But what, what, what Jesus is saying here is there is something at work behind it. And if we extrapolate out from this one example to the whole world, uh, we see a great many things happening, all of them overseen and directed by the providential hand of God. And if he is this intricately involved in the operation of his creation, 
It also means that he is controlling it towards something. He is working it to his ends. And at the end of the parable here, we see the farmer gets to harvest the crops. The farmer gets to benefit from all of that work that God has done. And so this is, this is one of the other things. Like we, we get to receive from God because of all that he is doing along the way. We are blessed because he is at work. And what all this should mean for us is that our trust in God, our, our assurance of the power behind all that is happening in the world, this should be growing throughout our life. The more we see, the more we should give him credit. Our worry for what is happening on this earthly level then should also wane. And Paul kind of shows how these two work in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's trying to shift our eyes to the unseen. He's encouraging us to invest in the eternal. And he's giving us tools that build us up against all that this life brings. All right, he's going to build on it with one more parable, one more revelation for us to add to our worldview. Verse 30, he says this. He says, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So once again, we get an agricultural metaphor, the mustard seed. Uh, The mustard seed was known at that time as as one of the smallest seeds that they regularly planted. Um, So they would be well aware of how um, this worked and the extreme difference between this tiny seed and the huge plant that came from it, which was one of the largest garden plants that grew. So this is the image that Jesus is presenting to them, um, that from the smallest of all seeds comes one of the largest plants. So what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, this is an issue of scale. The kingdom as we currently see it is in its mustard seed form. And it seems really unimpressive. Even for those who focus on the unseen, even for those of us who make our lives about sort of tracking what God is doing, it's actually really sad to see how little of the creation actually gives any sort of credit to its creator. Even those who claim Christ, right? Churches are filled with people who do not place their lives under the authority of God. And because of that, the kingdom of God can sometimes seem like, again, pretty weak. The kingdom seems small. The kingdom does not seem to have the sort of power that the Bible talks about it in. But as I've said numerous times in this sermon, this leads us to putting our hope and our trust in things that seem to be bigger. The things that to our eyes have the power that we are looking for. But Jesus tells the people here, That just like no one could ever imagine the potential that that mustard seed held, so we have no idea the grandeur and size and power of the kingdom of God. Our best guesses, based on what we can see, fall far short. And so he doesn't go on to try to explain to us how big it is by giving us kind of measurements and and these sorts of things. He basically just says, you can't really guess. The illustration shows us that, that it's much greater than what we could ever imagine. 
And so what Jesus has done in these three parables of the kingdom is provide for us some new information, right? Again, show us behind the curtain. He's given that to us so that we can add that to what we see and understand in this life. But these are not truths that we can go out and find in any other way than him giving them to us. Which also means these are not truths that you should look at and go, based on what I see and understand, what are the parts of this I'm going to accept and which are the, are the parts of this that I'm not going to accept? Because this isn't truth that you are privy to being able to see apart from him. And so what we're supposed to do with this is not sort of filter it through what we already have. But these are unseen promises for us to hold on to and invest in and live for while we live a life that only perceives a small portion of what's actually going on. So we should take these truths to become the foundation for life as we live it now. So what are the promises? Right? What promises has Jesus given us here today in these three parables? Well, in the first parable, Jesus promised that all would be revealed. That the light would shine bright and the whole world would be ruled over by his truth and goodness. He said, it will happen. We can be sure of it. In the second parable, he promised us that God is actively working in each and every part of the world to bring about his glorious end. And in the third parable, Jesus promised that the kingdom to come is going to be greater and more substantial than we can even fathom from the viewpoint of the seed that we currently exist in. So what Jesus has done is he's shown us the end of the story. He has told us that he is with us every step of the way until we get there. And he has told us that the inheritance that we gain at the end is greater than anything that we can imagine. It's not even worth trying to compare like, hmm, should I give up this thing in this life because will I get something better? In the... It's greater than you could ever imagine. It's worth giving up everything for. That's actually another parable of Jesus. Um, there's quite a few that say, sell everything that you have to purchase that thing. Speaking of the kingdom of God. And what all this means for us is that we have nothing to fear. Let me repeat that. As Christians, given these promises, we have nothing to fear. And I say it in this dramatic way because I think so much of our lives are built up in insecurity and worry and anxiety so much of how we act and how we respond is built out of what we're afraid is going to happen. And all these worldly cares and concerns, they're not your identity, they're not ultimate, they cannot fulfill you, but the assurance here is neither can they take away what Jesus has already secured for you. He will do it, and in the end, we will reap the harvest, and we will get everything that we could have ever imagined because of his work. So as you take stock of your life, as you look over your schedule and think, how am I going to invest my time and my thoughts, please spend it on building up your confidence in what Jesus says will be. Not on all the things that our world is telling us to be scared of. Because that list just keeps growing. And so we do this every week when we come together. Um, one of the things that we do is, as, we, as we gather together is we take communion. And in communion, we are reflecting on the work that Jesus has already done to purchase us and bring us into his kingdom. 
It's also a reminder to us that, 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 th- that it's going in a direction. Right? As Jesus said to us, um, keep doing this until I come again. It's the promise that he will come again. That we will share future with him in eternity. So as you come to the table today, take the bread and the cup as the assurance that the kingdom of God will prevail. And that all of God's people will be part of it. That we get to enjoy the perfect work of God forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just all of that you are doing in this world. That all, all that you are doing in each and every one of our lives. All the ways in which you are orchestrating things together towards your ultimate purposes. And we have to admit that when we look at it, it's confusing. It doesn't seem to be moving in the right direction. You've shown us where it's going, and yet it doesn't seem to be getting closer to that end. So we just pray that you would, that you would help us to put our trust fully in you and not in just in what we see. We pray that you would help us to uh, really believe that you are going to do exactly what you said. And that because of that, we have no reason for fear. We thank you for, again, all that you have promised, all that you have given to us. Help us to believe. It's in in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.